I'm going to put my watch on to there. gentlemen, I'd like to thank you for coming here to the, the library at the Hunterian, at the Royal College of Surgeons, uh, for the first in our lunchtime lectures um, that will follow through from now until July. And of course I'd like to introduce our speaker today, uh, Dr Alan Chapman from Wadham College, Oxford, who's uh, repeating his triumph of his talk on Hook uh, that was done the previous year, uh, will now be speaking on the subject of uh, Thomas Willis. Um, I have not much more to say at this point except just to say that we, after the lecture we do have an excellent selection of Willis artefacts on display, books and, and objects in the library collections, so please do make sure you take a look at the, the, most, the rearmost two cases at the back uh, to see the objects before you leave the room. And without further ado. Thank you very much, Haley. Well, thank you very much indeed, Haley. I put my watch onto here. What sixty miles? Put my watch there. There isn't a clock. Well, first of all, thank you for coming along. Because well, this is a postponed lecture from last September. Uh, postponed by the fact that since I now spoke at the Royal College, which was in February last year on Robert Hooke, I myself have been on the receiving end of the surgical profession for an operation for palate cancer, which of course has been very, very successfully done. And I now speak to you with an acrylic mouth, or at least a part of it. Uh, my wife said they have taken from you a mouth of gold and given you one of plastic, but the one of plastic still works very, very well, I'm going to say. And I have the warmest regards for Mr. Stephen Watts-Smith, fellow of this college, and his colleagues in Oxford at the John Radcliffe, the Facial Maxillary uh, Department, for all that they have done. And I saw Stephen yesterday and said I was going to be here. So uh, it's an enormous thank you from them. And also to, I know, speak to you as someone who has actually experienced quite considerable surgery and found it intellectually fascinating and have engaged right the way through the entire process, intellectually and scientifically, and learned a great deal. Now, it's true that this is not quite the same as surgery in the 17th century, but even so, one learns the different relationship doctor-patient or surgeon-patient, as opposed to speaking to healers uh, as scientific people on a, on a similar kind of term. So I just mentioned that, and thank you for coming along. Now, to talk about Thomas Willis, before getting on to Willis, I want to give you a good bit of background, because this lecture is part of the delayed uh, series linking up with the Royal Society's 350th anniversary last year. Willis was an early, what's called an original FRS, Fellow of the Royal Society, elected 1663, and although he may never have attended Royal Society meetings, and certainly never published in their journal, nonetheless he was part of that fellowship, along with Robert Hooke and Richard Lauer and his famous pupils. And before looking at Willis, however, what I want to do is to look at the way in which the understanding of the human body 
changed profoundly in the 17th century because Willis didn't just, as he said, open heads. A wonderful phrase in Willis, I addicted myself to the opening of heads. What a wonderful term. But to do that, you need a context. You're not just fiddling around inside the skull. You're needing to learn things about it. And that's not just the head. It's not just the skull or the brain. It's the rest of the body. How does the body work? They're starting to ask that radically and profoundly in the 17th century. Because the classical inheritance is changing drastically. As they're finding more and more things that don't fit Galen, Hippocrates, Celsus, and the ancient writers. And they're asking why and how. And how can <coughs> empirical investigation into the body teach us things? Because one thing which they did not know is how immensely complex the human body is. And the rapid progress they were making in the 17th century, they didn't realise it was no more than just nipping the skin of the cherry. It would be a long, long, long time, Hunter, Lister, Harvey Cushing, and so on, to get to a state of surgery and medicine that we have today. But you have to start by looking at the basic object, the human body how it works, how you think it works, test the theories, and so on. And this is what happens in Willis's time. Willis, in terms of his dates, I may say, shows up. Willis's dates are 1621 to 1625. He died in London at the age of 54 from a bout of what was probably viral pneumonia in the hard winter of 1675. But that's his life in a nutshell. Let's say something first of all, though about surgery in London at the time of the founding of the Royal Society in 1660. Today, we associate all the branches of the healing art with rigorous, high standard training and meticulous qualification procedures. It's hard for us to rethink into their world when being a qualified doctor, I say doctor, not surgeon, qualified doctor could be any old kind of worms you chose to give it. Even if you had an MD or DM from Oxford or a Bachelor of Medicine, you literally bought them through your university. You didn't have a clinical training, unless you were, let's say, in Padua or Leiden or somewhere like that. But to acquire an Oxford DM meant that you had to fulfil certain terms of residence attend certain lectures and classes which were often pretty uh, general and then at the end of it present your money. So in other words you received effectively a literary training. You'd read Galen, you'd read Hippocrates and what you were examining largely were the ancient writers and then you were set loose on suffering humanity at a guinea an hour, at least a guinea an hour, sometimes considerably more. I often wonder, for instance, how one of Willis's successors in Oxford, John Radcliffe, Oxford University's biggest benefactor until Lord Nuffield, ever acquired the £40,000 he left to Oxford University, because the curative capacities of his day were primitive in the extreme. So the idea, therefore, of qualification is woolly in our sight. John Mayer, the great pioneer of respiratory physiology, and himself a fellow of my own college, Wadham. He himself had a practice in Bath and in London, outside term. 
He was a Bachelor of Civil Laws and a Doctor of Civil Laws. He had no medical qualifications whatsoever. Yet, he was as good a doctor as on the books, and his physiological researches were brilliant and unparalleled. Generally speaking, you could qualify as a healer if you could convince the Archdeacon's Court of the diocese in which you were living that you were a gentleman in good standing with a good education. M.A. Oxon, M.A. Cantab, blameless record, gentlemanly conduct, and you could often practice. Working on this entry that you would read it up for yourself, learn a bit, have some medical friends, many be like you, and then set loose on the world. What about surgeons? Surgeons were slightly different animal. They did come up to a much more regulate, regulated procedure from, of course, the original Worshipful Company of 1548, founded by Henry VIII shortly before he died. The Worshipful Company had all the mechanisms of a city livery company. You had to be bound apprentice. You had to serve a term of years to an accredited master. You had to walk the wards of Bart's and St Thomas's, the two hospitals in London in those days. You had to then go through a series of verbal, viva voce, examinations. And in fact, over there, there's a picture, one of the Gilray cartoons, which I saw earlier on, of about a hundred and odd years later, of a poor, hapless young student faced by the great semicircle of elders of the college who were grilling him as to whether he was fit to practice surgery. Curiously enough, this is a much more tight procedure in surgery. And when you look at many of the great surgeons of the 17th century, Edward and James Mullins, or Mullins, great dynasty, three generations of London surgeons, or Thomas Hollier, the man who operated on Samuel Pepys in 1658 for Bladderstone, and it was said, operated on 30 consecutive people of the operation of lithotomy, and they all survived. That was incredible by the standards of the day. How true that was, we don't know. I've actually tracked down the source of that story. It gets repeated all over the place, but I've tracked it down. John Ward, the Reverend John Ward, another amateur doctor, professionally vicar of Stratford-upon-Avon. Whenever he wasn't in Stratford-upon-Avon, he was either his medical chums at Oxford or his medical chums at Bart's or St Thomas's. And he records in his diary the porter at St Thomas's Hospital said that Mr Hollier performed 30 consecutive cases of lithotomy where they all survived. That's where it comes from, Ward's Journal. It's probably copied it here. Ward's Journal published in a printed form in, 16, in 1839. But we're dealing with the 1660s, this same period. Now, when you look at surgery, what could a surgeon do in those days? Most of the surgery was on the external parts of the body. It was generally amputation of one form or another. It would be the setting of broken bones. It would be the lancing of boils, abscesses. Occasional attempts at things like breast cancer. And also, of course, lithotomy, a dangerous procedure. But to really, not trying to make your flesh creep, but to give you one example of, again, do-it-yourself major surgery. One reference I found some years ago 
to the London astrologer John Booker, who, like me, was a native of Manchester. He came down to seek his fortune in London and was taken on as a clerk to a great city merchant. We're talking here of the period, no, it was before the Civil War, 1630, something like that. His master's wife developed breast cancer. She was terrified of seeing a doctor. She liked Booker. She thought he was a good kind chap. And over the course of several days, with a pair of scissors, he removed her cancerous breast. Now, <laughs> that is amateur surgery, if ever there was. He recorded it in his early autobiography. And the autobiography was about 1670. But to give you some idea as to how very, very erratic the practice of even surgery could be. And certainly it was not because this lady could not afford a doctor. Her husband was a rich merchant. She was terrified. And it was better occasionally to have her trusted servant taking a few cuts with the scissors and then putting probably quite dirty rags on the wound. We're not told how long she survived, but Booker records the operation. So this is really what surgeons would do. They were often remarkably good at dissection. They would perform dissection. The Royal College of Court, well, the Worshipful Company required dissection. And of course, when William Harvey was Lumley and lecturer here, and of course the Lumley room just through there, these lectures were for the College of Surgeons and for teaching young men how to dissect. You wouldn't actually have cut a body up at these lectures. You'd have seen it as a sort of medical theatre. You would have had Harvey reading the lecture. You would have had an operator producing the various parts from the body as they went along. And then discussion. Samuel Pepys described 1663 exactly one such case. Brought to by his friend, Mr. Hollier, who had relieved him from the bladder stone five years before. The man they were dissecting was one Dylan, a sailor, hanged for theft. It's in Pepys's diary. And it was mixed with a great dinner and a celebration. You started off in the morning. They disemboweled Dylan. They rolled the bits out. Then they all went off for a good dinner. Dinner, of course, in those days being a midday meal. Afterwards, they came back for a bit more. And because Pepys had had bladderstone, he wanted to see what he called the ureters, those parts of the body controlling the urinary tract. And very kindly, Mr. Hollier showed him they dissected them all out on a board for Samuel to see from Dylan, the dead sailor. Now, you imagine that you have friends into the dissection. You puncture the dissection in the middle with a very, very sumptuous dinner with a great deal of booze, and then you get the bits out for friends to see. This is the early Royal Society. This was a college lecture, but under the aegis of the growing scientific culture of the early Royal Society. So therefore we have that practice of the art of surgery, as they called it. But very, very central, and to, this is crucial to understanding Willis, was the very idea of the changes in the way in which the body worked, which happened in this time. I tell students, it is in my opinion, the most important single medical text ever written was Harvey's De Motu Cordius et Sanguinis in Animalium, 1628, London, on the motion of the heart and blood in living things. It was in that text that Harvey described a series of meticulous experiments 
that fundamentally reroutes how the blood was thought to move around the human body. Without that knowledge, we could not have modern surgery. We could not even have modern medicine, we could not have drips, we could not have intravenous injections, nothing like that. What was thought to happen in the body before Harvey, and Harvey's work took a lot of accepting in certain quarters, especially by Dr Primrose of the Royal College of Physicians, who was his arch enemy. What was thought happened is that your stomach generated essential fluids from food. These went to the liver, where they were turned to blood, gross blood. The gross blood went up the vena cava into the heart, and there the lungs blew air into the heart and refined the blood. And the blood then went back through the vena cava, in once, out again, and then into the veins, not the nerves, not, not the arteries, all around the body. The blood was consumed in heat, movement, flesh. After all, it was very logical. Why do gluttons get fat? Because you generate too much blood, the blood gets clogged in their extremities, and it just solidifies. Because it's wrong. Harvey applies a mechanical approach. And he asks, if the heart beats about 60 or 70 times a minute, and in dissection we could take a heart, weigh it empty, and then weigh it engorged with blood, and multiply that number by 60 or 70, we soon find that our entire body weight passes through our heart in less than half an hour. Now, no glutton in the world eats his or her body weight of food in half an hour. Where is this missing mass coming from? This leads Harvey to try to examine what you might call the plumbing of the human body. And after a series of investigations covering maybe 20 years, 1615, 1628, something like that, he comes to the idea that the heart actually sends the blood into the aorta and into the arteries. Classical doctors had a very imperfect understanding of the arteries and what they were supposed to do. The arteries were thought to carry pneuma, soul force, the sort of vital air through the body. Why? Because when you dissected the body, the arteries were always empty. It was the veins that had the blood in them, trapped, of course, in the valves. Harvey realised that the valves were there to stage the blood back to the heart. So down the arteries, through these highly contested capillaries, then up the veins, back to the heart. But you think, in, let's say, Shakespeare, or John Donne, or any of the great poets of the Elizabethan period, nobody ever has blood coursing through their arteries. It's always their veins that the blood is coursing through. This is standard physiology from the ancient world. Harvey produces an incredible body of experiments. In 1663, Marcello Malfighi in Bologna, and of course, let's remember, medicine was a totally international discipline, discovers through the early microscope, substantiated by Robert Hooke here in Oxford, the existence of veins and arteries so small you could not see them even with a magnifying glass but you could with a magnification of 50 in a micro, in other words, capillaries. Bologna finally shows the connection between the two and shows the circuit. Now, my argument is, like I said, without that knowledge, 
you could virtually hold most of modern medicine and surgery. You imagine where you'd go today if you still thought that the stomach was a furnace, the heart was a, a sort of a pressure cooker, and that the lungs were bellows that blew air into the heart. That's why I think it's perhaps the most important single formative text. It was also deeply experimental. He is not drawing on classical references at Emperor although Harvey knew his classical writers like the back of his hand, and he had a tremendous respect for Aristotle. In fact, classical thinking even underpinned his thinking. He points out that Aristotle suggests it's logical for each thing to have a purpose. Why should certain things be overworked, such as the vena cava, in and out of blood, and others underworked. There should be a relationship between structure and function. So therefore, things which are actually doing too much, we probably misunderstood their working. In reality, all things should have a balance of usage. So curiously enough, classical medicine even guides his radical ideas about the replumbing of the human body. Now why I say so much about Harvey? You can't have Willis without Harvey. Harvey's work sets an agenda for British, European doctors. Does the blood circulate? If it does, what's the purpose of the lungs? If the blood passes through the lungs, do the lungs put something into the blood or suck something out? In other words, do they give a life force to the blood or do they extract an impurity? They have to find that one out. They have to fully understand the system by which the capillaries work. And of course, what happens up here? What on earth does that largely bloodless lump of meat at the top of our spinal column have to do with the circulatory system? Because when you remove a brain from a head, it's bloodless, pretty bloodless. Why? Question, 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 question. This is the agenda out of which later 17th-century physiological research comes. And it's not just here, it's at Leiden with people like Tulp, it's in Bologna, and of course a little bit later in Edinburgh. Edinburgh gets going by the 1720s, 1730s. But you can see that whole tradition emerging. Now, the Royal Society itself, founded in 1660, was very much concerned with bringing an experimental approach to the whole of living things, or, or even dead things for that matter. What was the force that drove the planets in the sky? What are the forces that make living things move? And emerging slowly out of this thinking is the idea that living things are machines. Now, this was not new in 1660. It went back to people like Vesalius in the 16th century. Vesalius, of course, in his De Fabrica Humani Corporis, on the structure of the human body, published in Venice in 1543, speaks of the body as a machine. He says the skeleton reminded him of tent poles to a tent. They hold the body together in the same way that tent poles hold a tent up. He was fascinated by the joints and the structures of the body. So it's not a new idea. Also, too, this looking at the body as a machine was not seen as atheistical. It was seen, if anything, as deeply religious. How beautifully God has contrived the body. God has made an engine of the body. A wonderful self-acting thing like a clock. 
and in consequence, therefore, we learn more by discovering the structures. This influences Willis profoundly, because we have to understand that the founder of modern neurology was a deeply devout Christian, and Cerebrae Anatomae, his great treatise on the brain, was dedicated to his patient and friend, Gilbert Sheldon, Archbishop of Canterbury who also was a friend of the Royal Society. So you see this movement emerging, but the idea of the body as a machine. Now, in 1651, there had been a publication which caused some shock in England at the height, of course, of the Cromwellian Revolution. It was Thomas Hobbes. Thomas Hobbes's writings caused a tremendous uh, well, um, reaction, largely because he was apparently a royalist but critical of royalism, and he was an overt attacker of Puritanism. Quite where did he stand? Of course, Hobbes was not a doctor. Hobbes was a great wit and a political thinker. He was writing of the state. But the idea of the body and the state is an ancient one. It goes back to classical times. The body and the state are parallels. When one is healthy, the other is healthy. And what is Hobbes saying in Leviathan? There is a lovely passage where he says this, all life is but motion. All life is but a movement of parts. The nerves are strings. The joints are wheels and levers, all wonderfully contrived together. Now, he was not a doctor. He was not even an amateur doctor. He never tried treating anybody. But he'd certainly seen bodies dissected in Italy and in Holland. And he knew what the inside of a corpse looked like. But what he was saying here, that we have to understand living things as mechanisms. And what dissection shows us is the mechanical nature of how things work. And the sheer wonder and beauty of that mechanism. Hobbes, of course, was attacked not because he said that, but because he angered the Puritans by his political statements and he angered the Royalists by his political statements. But of course his medical stuff is often ignored. Now I'm a great admirer of Hobbes, partly because too he was a profound influence on Robert Hooke, my own biographical victim, and I suspect, although I'm not for certain, I suspect that Willis would disapprove of him for a number of reasons. Willis was an overt, out-and-out Lordian Royalist and hence, of course, would not have quite been happy with somebody like Hobbes. But even so, what you have are the ideas circulating in mid-17th century England, and the body as a machine, or as they sometimes said, an engine, a bit like a clock, a self-acting device, fascinated. Now, in the Royal Society, the agenda of the Society, founded originally on the 20th of November, 1660, was to investigate all knowledge openly and publicly. In other words, not in secret, not by a sort of private club or something like that. They recognised the importance of publication. The longest running serial publication in history, they founded in 1665 March, and I'm sure there's sets of copies of them here today the philosophical transactions of the Royal Society, March 1665 till January 2011, the longest-running serial publication in history. What was that for? To make their discoveries public in medicine, 
in astronomy, in chemistry, in geography, you name it. The idea of the communality of knowledge. The idea that instead of being rather like a secret society, you actually put the knowledge out there to fire in other directions. We can't understand the world society without understanding that. The society was not just a club of gentlemen coming together. It was very much a club of gentlemen committed to a public knowledge agenda with nature at the heart of that agenda. So this is how the Royal Society came in. It's interesting, for instance, that several surgeons became early FRSs. One was Edmund, sometimes called Freeman, sometimes called King. Why, why he had two names that he used differently? He didn't use them double-barreled. Sometimes he was Mr. Freeman, sometimes Mr. King. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, he was not involved in anything nefarious. But in fact, Edmund King was a remarkable man. He was the son of a London surgeon. That's right, a Coventry surgeon. Came to London. And in London, he did very well. He then eventually got an MD degree. He became physician to the king. And I have to say, rather tragically, some of his medication to the ailing Charles II probably were responsible for killing him. Sufficiently so that the parliamentary grant of a thousand pounds that would be given to him for curing the king was withdrawn. But he still got a knighthood. And of course, he was a great experimentalist. He works with Hooke on a number of research projects involving biology and experimentation. So you have Edmund King, free of the Company of Surgeons of London, member of the Royal College of Physicians, MD, and Knight. So it was a much more open world than we often are given belief to think. In fact, he died at the power of his glory at a ripe old age in 1709. But now, what about this mechanical philosophy? The mechanical philosophy is central because it governs the way in which people like Willis think. And we might find it odd again today to find a man who is deeply devout like Willis, who at the same time has a completely mechanical view of how nature works. He had no time for spirits. He had no time for strange, invisible agencies changing the human body. He believed that God had made living things like the cosmos as a machine. And we understood God better by studying that machine. So he was not looking for what you might call conjuring tricks or anything like that. And his rigour as a physical thinker is very, very impressive. So now let's get on to Willis himself, having gone through so much material about his background and his context. Well, he was born in Wiltshire in the village of Great Bedouin. His family were on that sort of cusp between the upper yeomanry and the lower gentry. They were quite well off. They also had property just outside Cumnor in Oxford. And his mother inherited something in the region of 60 acres of land at Cumnor. The family relocated to Cumnor. And he, as a boy, was sent to be educated at Dr. Sylvester's private school, as in a prep school in Oxford. There he received his Latin and Greek training and all the necessary qualifications to becoming a member of the university. Sadly, both parents died of camp fever, the outbreak of the Civil War. 
And it's been thought too that one of the things that's perhaps stimulated his interest in medicine generally was the death of his parents by this seemingly unstoppable disease. Camp fever, because we probably now call it typhus, largely caused by an essentially unwashed population with a lot of vermin um, communally in that society. But then, how does he get interested in medicine? He goes up to Christchurch, and, well, I may say I was last night, I dined last night myself, so I have a lot of medical friends in Christchurch. And in Christchurch, he was taken as what was called a servitor to canon aisles. Now, of course, Christchurch has the canons who serve the cathedral, and they're members of the, of the foundation, and canon aisles is one of them. Now, when you become a servitor in the 17th century, you were taken under the wing of a great university gentleman. And basically, you were given a home in his house, and of course, the canon lived in the college itself. But the real thing is, Willis, of course, intended to become a clergyman. But then, Mrs. Isles was herself a very skilled amateur doctor. An amateur doctor, yes, a canon's wife. I have found scores of people in the next 150 years, clergymen's wives, who practice medicine quite openly around England. Mrs. Isles dispensed to the poor. She was a very skilled pharmacist. In the kitchen, she had her stills and all the apparatus for extracts and so on. And she was regarded as a very, very good person. She got Robert to assist her. And he became fascinated by what he called physic medicine by helping Mrs. Isles brew her various concoctions and decoctions for anybody who needed them. I may say, too, that I've come across other figures who did this on an extensive basis. Mrs. Tillotson, the wife of the future Archbishop of Canterbury, John Tillotson, great friend of Robert Hooke. She was also very good at it as well. And Mrs. Tillotson brewed her what was called her purging ale that would allegedly shift anything that was blocking the inside of your body. And it's a fascinating tradition. Clerical wives doing serious medicine. But this is how Robert Hooke, how Thomas Willis, gets into serious medical ideas. The Civil War wrecked his prospects of becoming a clergyman. Because, of course, Cromwell and Parliament abolished the Church of England. He then, well, effectively gets thrown out of Christchurch, I think, largely because he will not take an oath of allegiance to what he sees as the detestable parliamentary regime. How do you earn a living? Yes, he probably had some income coming from landing inherited in Cumna. Well, he likes medicine. He's fascinated by it. He can make medicines. He'll practice. <laughs> he'll practice at the age of 25. He decides he'll do some medicine, do some physicking. He finds he's good at it. What he's learned from Mrs. Ariel, he can do the right things. He becomes a first-rate diagnostician. And then he tells us, even one day we travelled on a horse to Abingdon Market, where he set up a stall selling his medicines at Abingdon Market. He felt it was rather necessary to start regularising himself a little bit. And in the method that was completely acceptable for an Oxford gentleman, he has, without any training at all, the degree of Bachelor of Medicine of Oxford University conferred upon him. 1646. In 1661, when he becomes Sedleyan Professor of Natural Philosophy, 
he then gets the DM. Not because he's given it for his achievement, because he thinks, well, I now have a chair, I should really have a doctorate. And he goes through the necessary procedures to effectively purchase the degree with nominal viva voce examination with men who are effectively his friends. Now, this is how you could get the highest level qualifications in those days. The thing about Willis and so many of his colleagues, they were genuinely good men. They actually had a lot of instinctive medical noose and they made, in his case, phenomenal discoveries. He found that he simply had more patients than he knew what to do with. He is, like I say, an Oxford BM with no formal training whatsoever behind him. He's learning on the job. And so he has somebody who's mentally ill. And he starts asking, what's happening in the brain? Are there fluids? In, and he's not talking about spirit possession. He totally rubbishes spirit possession. He rubbishes witchcraft. He says, yes, witches can exist, theoretically, because they're mentioned in the book of Leviticus in the Bible. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. And there's the witch of Endor in the book of Kings. So, yes, they can exist. But I don't think this woman is one. I think this one's crazy. <laughs> that was his approach. And what does crazy mean? Well, liquids moving in the brain. He starts to suggest these ideas that fluids moving in the body. Now, his early work, before he gets onto the brain proper, is concerned with circulation. His early work with Richard Lauer, Christopher Wren, yes, Christopher Wren, before Christopher Wren takes up architecture, he's professor of astronomy at Oxford and a first-rate anatomical draftsman. And also, too, he starts to work with this community of men he attracts around him, including, of course, the future great philosopher, John Locke. Essay Concerning Human Understanding, 1691. Locke cuts his teeth as a medical assistant to Willis in his early days in Oxford. Actually, Locke was a qualified doctor, became one by the same process. And so he's starting to ask, what is respiration? What is breathing? The Royal Society are deeply concerned with this process. Do we breathe, as I said, because the lungs extract a toxin, some kind of vague toxin, from the blood? Or is the colour change in the lungs, when the blood then passes out into the aorta, caused by something going in? Now, Robert Hooke, Willis, Mayo, totally medical qualification free Mayo, have an idea, and it comes from the nature of gunpowder. And it's called the aerial nitre theory. Nitre, what we would call saltpetre, or KNO3, the triple oxygen bond in modern, in modern chemical terminology, they knew was essential to the explosion of gunpowder. They knew it also had to be matched with sulphur to produce an explosion. They then suggest that changes in nature require, on the one hand, an aerial nitre, fiery connection, followed by a sulphurous, combustive connection. And aerial nitre, yes, we might say oxygen. They knew nothing about this. They didn't actually think of chemical gases in those days. We recognise what was their aerial nitre, we call oxygen. 
the three bonds that come off oxygen when we toast potassium nitrate. But the idea now being, living things need this force. And if you don't actually have aerial nitre going into the body, then the body fails to work with its sulfurs that make body heat. Why are living bodies warm? Because aerial nitre works with the sulfurs in the body and generates heat. It's totally and utterly wrong, but you can see their way of thinking. And they've come into that from chemical and physiological directions. They then want to know, is the whole respiratory system controlled by mechanical or chemical means? Do we breathe because the lungs and the trachea have a natural built-in integer <gasps> like that? Or is it a chemical ingestion that actually makes them do that? And they performed here in Oxford a horrendous experiment in 1665, written up by Robert Hooke, and it's called An Account of a Dog Dissected. It was a dog, a small one, spreading it onto a table, its thorax opened, and its windpipe cut open, and a pair of bellows put in. They found that when they blew the bellows, the dog's heart rate stabilised. When they stopped the bellows, the heart went into trauma, put it back in, and it stabilises, showing that it's the ingestion of air that makes the respiratory tract work, not just a spontaneous mechanical energy. A horrendous experiment, yes, but it taught us a very, very great deal, and that's their style of thinking. So respiration and respiratory chemistry is what first really hits Willis. And then, how do you start with the brain? Well, he has a number of suggestions, and his writing such as On the Soul of Brutes, De Anima Brutorum, 1672, he suggests that, well, in his numerous dissections in Oxford, he once dissected a man who he had known in life, and he knew that this man had not died from anything, what you might call, what they would have called madness. And his right carotid artery was completely slurred, it was completely blocked. And his left carotid had swollen to two to three times its normal volume. I would suggest the first ever proper recognition of automatic compensation. One part fails, another one takes over. Now, what do you think the carotids did? They were known back to the ancient world. It was thought that the left and the right carotids fed the left and the right hemispheres of the brain. So therefore, if his right carotid wasn't working, half his brain should have been dead. But he wasn't. He was perfectly healthy, at least until whatever fever killed him. Willis then traced this and found in the base of the brain a great circular artery. Immortalised to this day as the circle of Willis. Both carotids pump into the circle of Willis. The circle becomes engorged with blood, and a series of minor arterial vessels then takes the blood into the two cerebral hemispheres. So that if one fails, the other can take over, and can still irrigate the brain. That was a wonderful application of what you might call biological plumbing to the understanding of how living things worked. 
and he wants to test it. What does he do? He sends his assistant out with, I presume, a couple of yards of string and a bone. Bring back a dog, not very large, and they open the doggy's throat, their ligature is carotid, pack it, give it a bone, and let it calm down. Doggy makes a wonderful recovery. Nothing wrong with the point. It was even following Willis around. It wouldn't have done had it not was coming to it, but it was even following him around. Then about a month later, he had the dog killed. Opened its neck, found that the ligature had still held, and that its other carotid had swollen to compensate. You find it in a cadaver, then you test it in a vivisection experiment. And of course, that's the way in which this research is being conducted. Over the course of about 10 years, he discovered more about the brain and its related nervous ganglia than any doctor or medical person from the days of Hippocrates onwards. He also pioneered the idea of what we would now call localization. He came to the idea, why, for instance, the blood was that the brain had different colors? Why is there a whitish interior part why is there a sort of grey material around it? Why are there the convolutions? What do the convolutions do? Are they just packing inside the skull? Or do they actually have some kind of mental function? He separated the difference between automatic and conscious functions of the brain, such as thinking on the one hand and just mere heartbeat on the other. And he also addressed the nature of mental illness. He described in his case books the treatment of a woman of Eton. This is a little village just outside Oxford, Eton, near uh, Chubney. And this woman was showing what we would now call, of course, very clearly, bipolar disorder. She would go through a state of uh, great lassitude and then a state of hyperactivity. And he's suggesting what this is probably caused by are fluids moving between the lateral ventricles of the brain. Totally speculative, absolutely. But actually, it was a suggestion that even mental behaviour, even those poor souls in Bethlehem Hospital, Bedlam, actually were themselves like that, with liquid movements in their brain. What we could do about it, of course, was another story. The only thing we could do in those days for mental illness was purge. The idea that if you actually exhausted a patient through heavy purgation, at least you'd shut them up for three or four days. Uh, that was basically what was done in Bedlam. No proper therapies at all. But to start a therapy, you have to start asking the right questions. What is the disorder? And it's not really until the 1940s that effectively psychoactive drugs that really work start to become possible. Although chloral hydrate in 1870 became a way of actually making the mental ill quiet without becoming addictive, but that was purely a placebo. But this is the way in which Willis is working. He traces the eight great nerves of the brain. And he also asks, from knowing many people in life who he came to dissect, I presume in London and Oxford, could I find structures in their brain that corresponded to marked behavioural traits in life? He came to draw the conclusion that the cerebellum, the appendage that hangs at the back of the brain, when you take a cerebellum out of a brain and squeeze it, well, you know, most people who have soft cerebella were actually quite musical. People had hard cerebellum, it's not what he was. Just the cerebellum controlled musicality.
is wrong, but he's asking the question, a functional relationship in the brain. What we have to do is find out where all the bits connect. He, of course, was tracing nerves from the brain into the body. He's not the first to do this, Vesalius had done this, Kaelin had done this, and others in the ancient world, but he's a new level of accuracy. He also, too, studies the whole basal ganglia of the brain, and his work, Cerebrianatomi, the human, or the, the brain, 1664 in Latin, is the real birth of modern neurology. It was the birth of neurology in another way too. It coined the term. He actually uses the term in its Latin sense, neurologia, from which we take the word neurology as the rational study of the brain. And his connections are absolutely incredible. Willis's work was formidable, and it would be a long time before serious new advances were made. One of the reasons for this being very straightforward, without modern techniques, without scans, what can you learn just with a scalpel and a magnifying glass? He'd more or less pushed it as far as it could go. And Willis's work, of course, made him, well, one of the great, great founders of modern physiology. The realisation that the body worked as a machine, it worked as a mechanism, that we could unravel it. Yet finally, you might say, if he was a religious man, what did he think about dissecting the brain? No problem at all. As far as he was concerned, when the soul had left the body and gone to God, then there was nothing wrong with studying what was left behind. And in one short chapter in Cerebrianatomy, in the, or this is in the English translation, he speaks of the brain as the living, breathing chapel of the deity. In other words, God's spirit lay in the brain. And of course, at death, it left. So then, have a go, cut it up, see how it works. So it was this bringing together of the religious and the scientific, which to him was absolutely harmonious. Let me just finish by saying something to you I couldn't have told you last week. I mentioned the other evening dining in Christchurch in Oxford, and I was sat next to a lady who works in pharmaceuticals, and she said her original training had been in nursing. She qualified as a nurse in Belfast in, what, maybe 15, 20 years ago, a woman probably in her mid-30s. And I was talking about Willis, because Willis was at Christchurch in Oxford, and she said, when I was a student nurse, one of the jokes in the hospital which is to one of the junior trainees, and popped down to the operating theatre and asked to borrow a circle of Willis. <laughs> Many of the amused student nurse came back, haven't got one. <laughs> but just to have that utterly by chance, somebody being sent off to find a circle of Willis and bring it back to the ward. Because, of course, it's that biological structure which really has immortalised Willis's association. There was, of course, a Willis ward in the old John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford. There was also, too, a Circle of Willis Dining Society, which many years ago I was asked to join, well, not to join, it's a member, not a surgeon, but take along as a guest. And so the Circle of Willis has entered into a modern understanding of the anatomy of the brain. But the very idea of it being used as a joke to tease junior nurses was absolutely the first time I had ever heard it last Friday night. Could I now have my slides, please?
Not a lot of fight. I think I can do this picture. Oh, yes, I should have told you beforehand, I'm speaking first and then the slides. I'm sorry I forgot to mention that. Uh, this is Thomas Willis. Uh, an engraving by David Logan, the famous Oxford engraver. Uh, um, I got CY 45 at the age of 45. This is Thomas Hobbes, the man who first came up with the idea of what is life but motion, what had the nerves but strings, what had the joints but wheels and levers. I think the sort of mischievous look in his face tells you a great deal about this man. He was a very, very great, a close friend of Charles II, and in fact so close to Charles II that it was the Palace of Whitehall, which of course was before Buckingham Palace, uh, the guards were told if Mr. Hobbs wishes to come, just let him through. He could walk into the king's presence whenever he wanted. This is a 15th century, very crude sketch about late medieval ideas of brain function. And I'm a great defender of medieval science, so this is not in any way meant to be humorous. But in fact, what it is, it, it gives you a good idea of the classical idea of how they thought the brain worked in ancient and medieval times. There are three chambers of the brain. These, of course, corresponding to the lateral ventricles. They thought they controlled speech, involuntary motion, and thinking. And between them was a little passageway, which is called the vermis, the worm in English. And through this vermis, fluids moved and gave you all the sensations. They felt hearing, shown by the bell. They felt sensation through the heart, sensation through the heart. They thought in the Middle Ages, in the ancient world, that the heart was a sensitive feeling organ. After all, that's why we still speak of soft hearts. It's why, in fact, Shakespeare often speaks of the heart as a seat of feeling. They believed that the heart was connected to the brain for feeling. Also to the snake, feeling of fire the holding of a flower to the nose, and the seeing. The way in which these five senses are all focused on three chambers of the brain, which are roughly speaking right, in a very, very primitive sense. Vesalius, 1543, De Fabrica Humani Corporis Venice. This beautiful view of the top part of a head, notice the gentleman's moustache, sawn through, and the lovely lateral ventricles. Yet, what was the function of all this stuff? They thought in the ancient world it was rather like packing. And of course, Willis was to show that it wasn't. It was itself fundamentally, biologically central. It wasn't just a sort of a bubble wrap to protect the lateral ventricles. And another, 16th century drawing of feeling, taste, bustus, oculus, outside, the three chambers, each affecting all of the sensations of the human body. This is a printed one of about, I think it's about 1520. And from Descartes to De Homine, 15, uh, 1654, again, the way in which binocular vision 
working essentially through the pineal gland in the brain, controls how our seeing and how looking and our pointing work together. More or less right, but a lot of things should be further done. Descartes, of course, himself, although generally thought of as a French mathematician, was himself a very skilled amateur dissector. And Willis's famous drawing of the base of the brain. Here is the famous circle of Willis. Fed by these two vessels, shown cut short there, the two carotids, and then taken into the whole of the cortex, in the two sides of the brain. Also to his drawing of the cerebellum. Here, sliced, drawn up. All of these drawings are by Sir Christopher Wren. So when you look at St Paul's Cathedral, the man who built St Paul's was Willis's anatomical draftsman. Could I have the lights again, please, now? Thank you very much indeed, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry I've run over somewhat, but uh, who knows? It's five for, it's five for two. But I'd be delighted to take any questions. Oh, yes? Uh, let me just turn my... Uh, another key thing, too. Uh, in surgery, uh, my hearing was a bit affected. I've been kitting it for the short term with hearing aids. So let me try to switch up a bit. I don't have the one when I'm speaking, otherwise I deaf myself. Well, interestingly enough, I was talking about this very thing to someone in the college just before lunch. <laughs> no much love with as I'm aware. Uh, the gentleman who treated King George III was Dr. Francis Willis. And he was a clergyman uh, a century later, because King George's initial illness, which is quite short, is in the autumn of 1689. So 1788, just before the French Revolution and he recovered in about six months. Willis was very, very successful. Willis, again, had no professional qualifications whatsoever. He was an M.A. Oxon and the holder of a good benefice in Lincolnshire, a clergyman. Now, Willis, it was said, had what was called, this is Francis Willis, a psychiatrist, had what they called the eye. He could allegedly be with seriously mentally ill people, look at them, fix them, and somehow pacify them. He's an extraordinary kind of gift of powerful personality. And he was sufficiently well known by the time that King George died, that Queen Charlotte asked the royal physicians who disapproved of Willis. You see, Willis was called a mad doctor. Mad doctors were fringe. But to bring in Willis, and the king benefited greatly. And his method of treating the king was remarkable. It was partly the imposition of his personality, obviously readily with political problems if you're dealing with your sovereign, but he had to make it quite clear in this context the king was a sick man. He was not necessarily the sovereign. They built up a remarkable relation between them. But George III never lost his wit. I'm a great, great admirer of King George III. He had a sharp tongue, he was a connoisseur, he loved science, he was a fine musician, and the creation of, effectively, the modern royal collections. And when Willis was brought in by the Queen 
to meet the king for the first time at the onset of the king's illness. He was in full clerical dress, of course. The king hated doctors of every kind. And he looked at Willis's clerical dress. He said, Sir, why are you wearing the dress of a profession I profoundly admire, yet you practice the art of what I utterly despise? <laughs> to which Willis then replied, Sir, even our saviour cured the lunatic. Which George Quick, but I said, but he did not get a thousand guineas for doing so. <laughs> <laughs> but that was Dr. Francis Willis. I'm not aware of a relationship with Tom, Thomas uh, at all. Yes, sir. Apart from the cerebral circulation, he made many other... Sir, let me just come round here one moment. Yes, sir. He, he made many other discoveries. Oh, yes, absolutely. One is oh, yes. always struck by the fact that a patient passing large quantities of urine yes. was found... Diabetes mellitus. sugary when he dipped it in his mouth. Yes. <laughs> and, of course, that's another thing, curiously enough. The doctors of this time, you had very few chemical tests today. Doctors tasted pretty well whatever was going. And the idea of that, or sipping a bit of urine in the wine glass, would have been accepted. In fact, more polite way in summer, with notion that a dish of diabetic urine attracted flies. But the idea of diabetes, diabetes, of course, is known in the ancient world. But diabetes mellitus, which of course he calls it, coming of course quite literally from sweet, the Greek for sweet, mellitus, Diabetes, of course, means literally pump. And basically, of course, the large quantity of urine tended to be voided by uh, diabetics. It was, of course, effectively pump in Greek, diabetes. Uh, then, of course, Willis refines it to sweet pump, diabetes mellitus. And they could do nothing for it, apart from putting what they called a low diet. Vegetables, milk, no meat wear you down considerably. And of course, not until people like Banting in the, 19th, in the 20th century could do very much for it. But as in all cases, accurate diagnosis has to precede treatment, even if it's by two and a half centuries. Well, yes, he did. His, his work is incredible. Uh, Kenneth Dewhurst, the late Kenneth Dewhurst, some years ago, produced two superb volumes, Willis's Oxford Lectures and Willis's Oxford Case Books. And these are full of superb observation, sometimes connected with rather what we might consider slightly over-the-top theory. Why does this happen? But even so, Willis as a clinician, as, again, a totally self-taught clinician, was immensely impressive. And you can understand when he had younger men around him, like Locke or Hooke or any of these, or, or Lauer, his ability to size up a patient must have been immensely impressive, even if sometimes the interpretative explanation of the disease was, um, well, wrong by modern standards. But diagnosis always has to precede any kind of treatment. And of course, part of their experimental agenda was the whole idea that you understand how the body works before you start addressing the infirmities from which it suffers. And that, I think, was another key thing to the early Royal Society. I've got a question regarding um, Hooke, because I'm, I'm a great fan of Hooke. Oh, I am. <laughs> lovely. Uh, and um, the whole point was that, as you know, really, he made the 
royal institution by doing all no, these experiments. Yeah. All these experiments and so on. But um, I was wondering whether uh, when he, when Hooke uh, put up these experiments on dogs for um, the blood transfusions, That's whether that one. was uh, at the instigation of Willis. I hadn't um, made that connection before. Just say, well, there are two things I didn't mention. One, of course, is the um, injection. I mentioned insufflation on yes. dogs. I didn't mention injection, nor, of course, the uh, use of intravenous injection, yes. which was utterly meaningless without Harvard and the circulation. Yes. Willis and Willis's chief clinical pupil, Lauer, do a lot of this together. Now, what's hard to get to the bottom of? These men knew each other so well, lived in the same city, Oxford, for a good bit of the time, often in London, they shared such a similar view. Who had the idea first is often hard to say. Uh, for instance, again, Christopher Wren was working with Lauer and Willis on early alcohol injection into dogs, an opium injection into dogs. See, a wonderful experiment they started in 1656, probably in the gardens of Wadham College in Oxford. They mentioned the garden. They want to know if the blood circulates and goes to the brain then if you put a narcotic into the blood, will it act quicker than passing through the stomach lining? When allegedly provides the dog, you must have easily experiments in those days, give you a servant, give him a couple of yards of string and a bone, come back with the dog of the right size, a straight. They inject it with a mixture of sank wine and opium, and instead of the dog moving drowsy, it just goes bang! <laughs> <laughs> They're struck by the speed, the dog just collapsed at injection which again, very humanely, they're told they chased it around the garden for half an hour so that it didn't die. And I still have this view of these periwigged gentlemen chasing the comatose dog <laughs> around Wadham Fellows' garden. But there, there is that. And also, too, of course, um, the respiratory stuff was very, very central to and the transfusion. Starting in Paris, originally, by Monsieur Denis, or a physician of... Montpellier in Paris, uh, injecting animal blood into humans and sometimes human to human, and miraculously working. You see, they thought you could cure mental illness by blood transfusion. The theory being, you see, a lunatic, what they call a lunatic, would have overfired blood. And what was the most specific and harmless of creatures? A lamb. So therefore, give a lunatic lamb's blood, and it should completely change. Because they saw your temperament is in your blood. So fiery people had uh, fiery blood, uh, wimps had watery blood, uh, and of course animal cognates as well. So therefore, why not give the lunatic this? And they tried it in Paris, and it worked. Apparently, you know, you put 10 ounces of sheep's blood into a man in Paris, Monsieur Denis, and he survives and gets better. They even release him from the lunatic asylum and he goes home to his wife. And his wife has taken a lovely me into him and this is causing all sorts of trouble. And all gets back to the Royal Society. And then, in addition to this, they do it in England. William, uh, almost certainly Willis, Lauer, his star pupil, Robert Hooke on um, Arthur Coger. Now, Arthur Coger was described as a debauched student of divinity from Cambridge, uh, utterly sussled, basically speaking. And he was made a guinea 
good sum of money in those days and a bottle of claret to be experimented on. And on the 23rd of November, 1667, Arthur Coker received 16 ounces of lamb's blood. Now you may say, no lambs around in November. A lamb was normally considered a sheep of the first year. So born last, last spring, fresh blood. Coger not only took it completely, he addressed the Royal Society in Latin to say how well he felt. He should have been dead. Two weeks later, at his request, because it was easy money, they did it again. After all, Guinea for a bit of an injection, some more booze, ooh, dead easy. And he comes back for more. And Coger is injected with sheep's blood on two occasions, two weeks apart, without any indication as there being any remotely serious reaction. There's been a lot of suggestions, of course, amongst modern medics, what it could have been. Was the blood, for instance, um, basically a, a clue, uh, uh, just simply uh, solidifying in the pipe so it didn't get through? No, it didn't. Lower clutch is quite clear. And we put the blood in and we pulled the pipe out, blood was still dripping. So it clearly went in. And how this man had effectively a small mugful of sheep's blood put in him with no ill effects whatsoever. None of my medical friends can remotely explain it. <laughs> well, why is it that now today, I mean, it's not a, you have to have, you have to have it of the right yeah. category, don't you? Yeah. And, and, and of course, that's discovered by Langensteiner in the beginning of the 20th century, the uh, discovered ONA in yes. Vienna in 1900. There were lots of experiments in the interim about, let's say, reviving the seriously wounded by a healthy soldier giving blood. But again, it could be totally, utterly hit and miss. But the animal-human barrier, I have no idea how Koga survived, or Monsieur, whatever he was called in Paris, survived. Um, there was also another account of the valet of the Swedish ambassador being treated, and he died, <laughs> hardly surprisingly. Uh, and the experiment stopped suddenly when there was a succession of deaths in Paris. And of course, Paris and London were in very close connection scientifically. And uh, Louis XIV stopped it in Paris and then it stopped in England. But how it happened at all totally beats me. <laughs> I think it just remains for me now to thank um, Alan so much for coming yeah. and speaking to us today. I'm sure if anyone has any burning questions, yes, you're welcome do. to come up to him before he leaves and ask him personally. And just to say that our next lecture will be on the 8th of March, and it will be the first in a lecture, series of lectures uh, themed around our lost, uh, London's Lost Museums exhibition, which will open on the 1st of March, and that is called How to Lose a Museum by Dr. Sam Alberti, the museum director. So thank you again, Alan. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Complete your evaluation form if you do relish your feedback. Thanks, some water. Oh, yes. We can turn off the. Oh, you can get my, my mic off. <laughs>